So let's read it. Uh, we're going to read Hebrews 12, 1 through, uh, we'll read 1 through 4. Here's what God's word says. It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted in your struggle against sin. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, Lord. And God, we pray that your kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven and that your will would be done. God, your word is power. It has power. It has power because it is ultimate reality, because it comes from your mind and from your nature. And so, God, we, we open this morning's text, Lord, uh, and we want to pause and we want to give reverence to it. We want to we stop and, and just remember how hallowed this is, this moment, where we give attention to the reality of Scripture. And God, this morning, we, we know that you're a speaking God. We know that you're an encouraging God. We know that your spirit, the paraclete, wants to come alongside and wants to give us what we need to, to run this race of endurance to the end. We know that this morning your ultimate desire, Father, is that we would get our eyes on Jesus Christ, your son, that, Lord, we would get our eyes off our own failures and our own miserable struggles and our own weight, and we would get our eyes onto the supremacy of Christ. So, Lord, would you lead our eyes this morning to be on the right thing? God, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Grab a seat. There comes a point in, uh, in any race or commitment or, or long-term uh, thing that you've signed up for where it ceases to be fun. Have you guys experienced that? Um, there, there, is, there comes a point where the thing that you thought would be really cool and that you romanticized in your mind and that you sort of played up and had all these ideas about how great it was going, all of a sudden you, you start, all of that becomes stripped away. So in, in a marathon, if you've ever done a marathon, it's, it's mile 20 through 26. That's when the race really starts. Mile, you know, first out of the gate, everything's fun, and there's all these people and your family and friends are like, oh, yeah, good job, and everyone's cheering, and you're like, oh, I'm so happy, and then, and then mile five, you get the, the first aid station, and people are handing you lemonade, and you're like, oh, this is great, I love racing, and then, you know, and you're just, mile 10, you're feeling pretty good, mile 15, mile 20, and then it hits you. Endurance athletes call it the wall, and when I first heard that, I thought, that's dramatic. That's dramatic. There's no wall there. You just got to keep running. Just got to suck it up, buttercup. Just run right. You know, it's not that hard. And then I hit the wall when I did my first marathon. I, did, I hit the wall. It was a thing. It was a real force. And uh, it was really hard. It was, it was incredibly hard. Endurance running is, is a, or any kind of endurance uh, racing is a very particular type 
of tired. It, it, your body soaks up all the nutrients, uses all the nutrients that you have, and all of a sudden, it just becomes pure grit. And when we are doing things like that, and whether that's a foot race or whether that's something more in life like raising kids or, or, or navigating through a difficult marriage or navigating through the last you know, five years of your career when it's literally just every day is hard, you get to these points and commitments at some point where you start to ask the question every day, why in the world did I sign up for this? And it's at that point that, that you are in what is called the endurance zone, where it no longer is fun and it's no longer euphoric and you're not running off dopamine and you're not running off of, uh, off of joy and elation. You're just purely running off of a decision, grit, determination, a choice. And it's at that point in the endurance zone that the most important thing at that moment is why. Why? Why am I running this? Why am I doing this? Why did I decide to do this? And you're, you're almost having this dialogue with your previous self. Hey, you idiot. Why did you sign me up for this? What, what was the thought process behind this? Why did we have all these kids? Whatever it is. Whatever your race is right now. I don't know. Why did I have to have five kids and now I have to put them through college? Why, I don't know. Whatever your race is. Okay, you stop and you, and you start to interact with your previous self and you go, why? Why did we do this? And the, the way that you answer that question determines or not whether you can metabolize that hope into energy. And that's what we need to do in endurance racing. We need to metabolize hope. And what do I mean by hope? Well, hope meaning the thing that you know that's coming. There's a reason I'm doing this. It's no longer for immediate joy and pleasure. I'm doing it to get to the end because at the end I have hope. And I don't mean hope like, oh, maybe it'll work out. I mean, I know without a shadow of a doubt that when I cross that finish line, there is joy. And that superior joy is going to push me all the way to the end through the endurance zone. Now, Hebrews was written, it's a letter, a pastoral letter that we're working our way through. We're coming close to the end. Um, spoiler alert, I think we're going to teach the book of Daniel next. So if you guys want to get excited about that, super pumped. Uh, anyways, uh, Hebrews is a letter, a pastoral letter written by an unknown author to a group of ethnically Jewish Christians who had become very fatigued in their race. They had, they had hit the wall. They had, it's also called sometimes, they had bonked. They had come up against this, this endurance zone in their race to follow after Jesus. And you might ask, well, why? Why were they so fatigued? Why was their race so hard? Why was it so heavy? And, and the answer is because these Jewish Christians had been essentially ostracized by their ethnically Jewish community. See, it wasn't popular in the first century to follow after Christ. These, these guys gave up. Not only did they give up their, their synagogue life and they give up their ability to go into the temple, they gave up their families. They were rejected by their own Jewish families for following Jesus. They were, they were persecuted. They were oftentimes, uh, they had sort of lost some of their status socially. In many ways, they gave up their franchise in this world in order to follow Jesus. And at first, when everyone's cheering for you, and at first when there's endorphins, and at first when there's, when there's you know, glucose and energy and you're feeling good, that might have been great. But now all that stuff's worn off, and the Hebrew Christians are weary. And they're starting to ask questions like this. How much do we need to really be Christian? And can we sort of drift back to Judaism? 
Or maybe we could syncretize or, or, or kind of enmesh Judaism with Christianity. Maybe we could go back to just sort of being Jews with sprinkling a little bit of Jesus in there. I mean, we can have our cake and, and eat it too. And perhaps, perhaps we don't have to be so rigid. And perhaps we don't have to see Jesus as the only way to the Father and Jesus as the only high priest. And so these Jewish Christians, because of circumstances and struggle, they're drifting from Christ. And so the coach who is the, the apostle here that wrote this letter, most likely the one that planted the church, most likely the one that sowed the seeds of the gospel into the faith of these believers. He does what any good coach would do, right? He comes and he jogs alongside the weary. And as he is jogging alongside them, he begins to give them what they need, which is nutrition. They need nutrition. They need something that they, they can put in the tank that's going to allow them to continue to run. What they really need is they need perspective, because see, when, you're, when your head is down, it's funny, when you get really tired, you naturally just kind of, your head goes down. What, what they need is they need the coach to come along and lift their head up and say, hey, look at the bigger picture here. I know you're tired. I know you're frustrated. I know you're feeling like you hit the wall, but look up and look at this bigger picture. And so that's what the author's been doing in this book of Hebrews. He's been helping the audience zoom out and remember why Christ is so valuable to them, why they can't go back, why they shouldn't hold loose Jesus. He is their high priest. He is their everything. They need to press in. They need to lean forward. They need to hold fast to Christ. So the author is jogging alongside of these racers and he's saying, hey, let me give you some, some perspective. And so the question this morning is, what does he remind them of? What, what's the fuel, what's the energy that he gives them to get to the end of the race? Now, I, I know, without even a show of hands, I know without a doubt that some of you in here are feeling like you hit a wall. You feel like you, and, and, and probably many of you would say, I feel like I hit a wall right now in regards to my walk with Jesus. There was a point where it was fun and exciting and new and reading my Bible was awesome in the morning and now I get up and I just, I don't feel like it. Faith is hard. It's not, there's, not, there's not like immediate excitement. It's hard to get up and go to church on Sunday. I there's resistance there. There's pressure pushing me against it. And so I, I bring that up to say that I know that this passage has total relevance to some of you. And I know it has relevance to all of you because in reality, we are all running this same race, the same race of faith. So what fuel does the author give? Let's look at the passage. We'll just read it uh, one more time and then I'll go back through it and, and point out some things. Here we go. Here's what the coach says as he jogs alongside these weary racers. He says, therefore, Hebrews 12, 1, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted in your struggle against sin. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. So the picture that is painted here by the coach to the racers is that of an arena, an Olympic stadium, which would have been very common at the time in, in the, the, the period in which this was written. He says, hey, I, wanna, I want you to see something. I want you to see a stadium. 
And in that stadium, there's stands full of people. And at the bottom of those stands, there's a track or some kind of a course. And on that course, there you are, believer, Christian, running this race. And you're not alone. And as you run this race, he's going to sort of zoom in on particular, a particular athlete. And that particular athlete is not you. A particular athlete is Christ. So what he's going to do here, and this will be our outline, is he's going to start in the macro and he's going to move to the micro. He's going to start big. He wants us to see the arena. He wants us to see who's in the stands. He wants us to see who's running and how we're to run and what we're to wear. And then he's going to zoom in on this one particular racer. And then he's going to go even deeper into the mindset of that particular racer in order to give us the kind of mindset that we need to have. So our outline, we're going to look at five elements in this picture. You want to write them all down, you can. I'll just go right through them. Five elements in this picture. We're going to see the cloud. Number two, we're going to see the course. Three, the apparel. Four, the pioneer. And five, the why. The cloud, the course, the apparel, the pioneer, the why. These are the things that the author wants us to see in this picture. Let's start with the cloud. Look again at verse one. He says, therefore... Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. The first word, you probably aren't going to be surprised by this. The first word I want you to notice is the word therefore. It's a very important word in the passage because what it tells us is that all of the things that have been previous to this verse are now finding their culmination in this verse in chapter 12, verse 1. Meaning all of chapter 11 has been leading up to this point and he's about to make a point. It's the so what moment in the sermon. Remember, this is one big thought, Hebrews is. It's one big letter, one big sermon. And, and we're about to run into a crescendo here of imperative where he's about to say, because I just said all that, here's what I want you to do about it. And what's he been saying for the last chapter, remember? If you're just joining us, you don't know, but you can go back and read it. Hebrews chapter 11, it's the hall of faith. He's been giving us evidence, example after example of people that ran the faith race. And he's saying, therefore, since we have this cloud of witnesses, who is the cloud of witnesses? Abel, Isaac, Jacob, Abraham, Moses, Enoch. Remember all of these characters that we've been unpacking? That's the cloud of witnesses. Therefore, since we have this cloud of witnesses surrounding us, now, he wants us to see that there's a stadium. Now, I don't think the point of this is, oh, so all of the saints that ran before are sitting up in heaven watching me. I don't think that's the point. I think they have better things to do, a.k.a. worship God forever, the ultimate source of power and glory Okay, they're in the presence of Christ right now. So I don't think that there's a stadium of people watching you run your race. Here's what I think this means. What I think this means is that there is a stadium of evidence, a stadium of, of witnesses. That word witness there, you can note it. It's uh, martis or martis where we get the word martyr. And it's, and it's essentially their life is bearing witness to something. What? What is their life bearing witness to? It's bearing witness to the fact that this race of faith is raceable, that you can do it, that you can run it. So, so picture it like this. After someone passes the finish line, which is, in this case, death, right? When you pass the finish line and you finish your race, you, you don't go home. You just run right up into the stands. And now your life is another testament. It's more evidence of the fact that this race is raceable. It's amazing, isn't it, how much seeing someone else do something gives you courage to do it yourself? 
I remember uh, I, had a, I had a buddy um, when I was uh, 20 or so who was a cage fighter. This guy was a beast. He, he could bench press, I'm not kidding you, he could bench press 500 pounds. He'd just throw it up, just massive guy. He'd get in the ring with these terrifying looking people. This guy was a stud, right? And so I, I said, hey, Scott, why don't we go climb Pilot Rock? You guys ever climbed Pilot Rock before? Anybody? Uh, one per- You're the only person in our entire church. Okay, one, okay. well, there... The, you know, it's, it's, it's a little bit of a hike, and then you get, and there's this, this rock crevice that you have to kind of shimmy your way through. It's a little sketchy, okay? A little sketchy. And so Scott gets to the bottom of the rock, and he looks, and Scott has a death, he has a, a deathly fear of heights. This big guy, this guy that would, like, punch me in the throat, and, you know? He's like, terrible fear of heights. He gets up to the rock, and he goes, uh-uh, not doing it. I'm like, dude, are you kidding me? Like, you have 50,000 tattoos all over your body. You could break me in half. Like, I don't know why tattoos matter. I guess they make you look tough. I don't know. Um, I don't know why that came out. But regardless, I'm like, dude, you could break me in half. How is it that you don't want to go up this, this, this rock thing? He's like, dude, it's just too scary, man. I can't do it. And then as we're debating, as I'm trying to pump him up and get him encouraged, the funniest thing happens. This little family comes down from the top of Pilot Rock, and this little seven-year-old girl is just like, boop, 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 like climbs out, no problem. And Scott's like, Okay, let's do it. Okay. <laughs> I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah. It's a cloud of witnesses. What it's saying is it's like, hey, you can do this. And, and by the way, you know, lest, lest we uh, make too much of some of the figures that we've been looking through in Hebrews, a lot of these guys were numbskulls. Like Abraham did some pretty dumb things. David did some pretty bad things. I mean, not to, not to disrespect these guys, but, but they were not all the brightest tools in the shed. I mean, so, so the reality is, look, if these guys can cross the finish line, you can do it. There's an encouragement there. There's, there's a, a bit of uh, sort of uh, endorphins that can be released when you look ahead of you and see, I'm not the only person that can do this. These guys' faith is substantive in their life. Now, just a couple points of application here, um, there's plenty of ways to source excitement and, and energy from the other racers that have run before you, and I would just encourage you guys to consider doing that. One of those ways is biographies. Like, pick up a biography of some old dead saint and, and read about it. I just, uh, I'm working my way right now through, very slowly, through Tim Keller's uh, biography that was written right before he passed away, uh, and it's encouraging. It's encouraging to hear about the faith of saints that have run before you. Another way you can do this is scripture. Open up the Bible and see, follow the journeys of Paul through the book of Acts, you know, open up the Old Testament, see the faith journeys, be encouraged by them. Uh, another way, and this is like, no, duh, is like, take someone to coffee this week and learn about their race. You're drawing energy. You're drawing. Um, meta- you're metabolizing hope by seeing their race. And one other quick point of application: consider the fact that your witness not only affects the lost, but your witness also has currency with other believers. You ever think about that? And we talk a little bit. Well, I, I don't want to ruin my witness with the lost. Yeah, but your life is a witness to other Christians. The way that you live. So I'd ask you: How is your race going? Are you racing? Are you on the couch? Are you racing? Is your race such that other believers, when they see you, they, they feel encouraged to run as well? Just consider that. So we've seen the cloud. Now, the, uh, the, the author here is going to take our attention with the camera. He's going to take it from the massive stadium of all of the believers, and he's going to now pan down to the course, the course that we're going to run on. So let's look at the course. Therefore, since, verse 1, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. We'll come back to that. And let us run with, note it, let us run with speed. 
Is that not what it says? What does yours say? Endurance. doesn't say speed. That was facetious. Okay. Uh, it's, it says run with endurance. I'm just glad some of you guys are reading along. Um, the race that is set before us. So here's what we're learning. We're learning that this race, this race of faith, okay, which is a metaphor, it's an analogy for the Christian life. The Christian life is not to be considered a sprint. What is it to be considered? It is to be considered an endurance race. Okay, an endurance race. Endurance mentality is so different. It's not about how do I run 100 yards as quickly as I possibly can. It's about how do I run as long as I can without dropping dead is essentially kind of the idea of endurance athletes, okay? Now, so we're, we're supposed to picture here in our minds, we think about the Christian faith, not a sprint, but an endurance race. And with it being a, an endurance race, this, this should bring some things to our mind. I just want to highlight them to you. Just seven quick things about the course, okay, if you want to write them down. First, this should make us think of pacing, pacing. If you are going to go out right now and run 50 miles, you have to think very hard about pacing. Pacing means not how fast can I run right now, but how slow can I run right now so that I can still run at mile 48 and mile 49. And here's, here's the bad news about how most of us operate as Christians, is we have these bursts of energy, you know, we watch a, a worship video or we listen to a sermon or we read and we're like, wow, I'm going to go do stuff for Jesus. And we just run out and we do all this stuff. And then three days later, we're having an existential crisis and we're depressed and we're on the couch and we're, and we're not even praying for three months, you know. And then, we're, and then we watch something else that kind of kicks in some endorphins. We're like, I'm, a bomb, I'm all about Jesus again. And then we race again. And okay, this is not the pacing of a faith race. Pacing of a faith race says, how can I run at a sustained pace for the rest of the course? And some of you guys in here are just starting your race. Some of you guys are like brand new Christians, some brand new Christians in here. Some of you guys haven't started your race yet. We're praying for you. Some of you guys have been running the race for a while. Some of you guys are midway. Some of you guys hit the wall. Some of you guys are in the endurance zone. I want you to consider, the text wants us to consider our pacing. Okay, this is an endurance course. The word endurance, note this, this is a very important biblical term. The word endurance is hupamene. Can you say that? Hupamene? I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right. Uh, Hupamene. Okay, it's to bear up under. It's the idea of, of essentially patience. A lot of Bibles uh, actually interpret it patience. Okay, so, so the, the race of faith is not a sprint. It's not a dash. It's a race of patience. It's about endurance. There's pacing. The second thing you should think about with the course is suffering. This is interesting. The word race here in the text, uh, it's actually the Greek word agon. What do you think that's the root word of? Agony. He's basically saying, hey, patiently run the agony race. Okay? Now, there's a lot of parts of Christianity that are very joyful. But let's just get real. There's a lot about being faithful over long periods of time, long obedience, following Jesus, saying yes, denying self, putting the flesh to death, choosing to pick up your cross week after week, day after day, when it's not fun, not easy. There's a lot of moments that feel like agony. And I think it's important that we note that that, 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 that when we think about the race that we're going to run, we have to recognize it's going to be hard. And if you go into it thinking it's not going to be hard, you're going to be really disillusioned and really disappointed, and you might have a faith crisis. It's, it's going to be hard. It's agony. You know Jesus' favorite metaphor for the Christian life? You know what it was? The cross. He said, pick up your cross and follow me. So Jesus gave a pretty hard metaphor as well when he explained the Christian life. You're not going to find any Christian metaphors in the New Testament that talk about 
couch sitting. You're not going to find one. You'll find Paul talking about soldiers and talking about farmers and talking about athletes. And you're not going to find any place that says Christian life is like floating down a river. Tell me if you find that verse. I'd love to put it on a fridge magnet. Uh, that'd be great. But no, pick up your cross. Third uh, thing about the course is planning. Notice this. It says, run the race with endurance, the race that is set before us. Who sets the course? Do you set the course? Or is the course set for you? The course is set for you. So, so you don't have to think about, I don't know if I like this course. I think I want a different course. I don't like this course. Too much elevation gain. Too many rocks. Can I get a different course, please? Because the course has been determined for you by the one that not only loves you the most, but by the one that knows you the most, and by the one that knows you could do it. You can, you can do it. Take a deep breath. You can do it. You can run the course. I know sometimes it feels like I can't. It's too hard. You can because you didn't pick it. He picked it for you, okay? He picked it for you. And you don't have to freak out all the time about whether or not you're off course because there's this beautiful thing called providence. It's like a GPS. Take the wrong turn. God's going to get you where he wants you to go, okay? He's very gracious and kind in keeping us on his course. It's his course. Another thing we should think about regarding the course is training, Okay? This is all built into this metaphor. The, the quality of your race is directly affected by the discipline and intentionality that you put into it. Okay? Now, this might seem kind of obvious, but like, you got to work at this thing. You know, you got Christianity, it's work. We don't work for our righteousness, but when we get righteousness, it's a lot of work. Christian life is a lot of work. Okay? It's a lot of work. You, you know, a, a disciple basically means disciplined one. Jesus was calling his followers into living a disciplined life. That's why the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9.26, he says, so I do not run, again, sticking with the run metaphor there, I do not run aimlessly, I do not box as one beating the air, he says, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So there's a, a level of training, okay? Number five, another thing regarding the course that we should think about is fueling. Okay, now, this, I've been learning all these things recently about endurance running, and one of the things I learned is that your body uses up all of the glucose, all of the glycogen stores that it, in your muscles within two, to half, two and a half to three hours of, 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 of sustained exercise. So you go right now, you run for three hours, you will deplete all of your body's resources, okay? And so if you're not actively putting calories in and putting glucose in and putting sugar in and water in, you're going to hit a wall, so what you have to do is, when you're doing endurance running, is you have to eat a lot. And it's so counterintuitive. You just got to shove calories. And you got to shove water, okay? This is a very important piece of running this race. Now, what am I talking about? I'm talking about the fact that if you're not eating now, you won't be able to run later. Some of you guys don't feel like, well, I'm not, I haven't hit the wall. And I'm not having a hard time. So I don't really need to get up and read my Bible this morning. Uh, yes, you do. You need to eat now so that you can metabolize it. It takes your body uh, up to six hours sometimes to metabolize the food that you put into your body. In the same way, when you eat the scripture, when you eat God's word, when you're eating truth, when you're eating ultimate reality, you're bringing the gospel in. It, it takes time for that to become nutrition down the road. We got to eat every day whether we feel like it or not, right? You need those calories. I know this is kind of basic, but guys, some of you guys need to hear this. You need to read now. You need to get the word in you now. You need to feast now on Christ and his body and his word so that when hard things come later, you have calories for that. 
super important. Another thing we should think about with this metaphor is coaching. Okay, you need someone like the author of Hebrews to come along and, and, and help you see what you're not seeing. And then uh, one more is co-laboring. You notice that the, the author here puts the word us here. He says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. The implication is that the author is running the race right alongside the other athletes. They're running it collectively. And that's one of the reasons people are, they, they, they just do more when there's someone next to them struggling, right? That's why we're here, guys. That's why this matters, if, if church was just listening to a sermon, you could do that at home. Church is more than that. Church is a body, a, an organic body life of people running the race next to each other so that when you're fatigued, so that when you're frustrated, so that when you hit the wall, you look over and you see, hey, you're frustrated too. But we're running together, okay? That's the whole idea. So we've seen the cloud. We've seen the course. Now let's move on to the apparel. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, again, verse 1, Here comes the imperative. Let us also, notice the word also, lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. So the imperative here, the the command here, the encouragement, exhortation is to, to run light. It's to run light, to not run heavy. And remember, I wanted you to note the word also, He's, he's saying also, meaning, hey, remember all of the faith racers in the Old Testament that also chose to let go of the resources, let go of the, the world and all of its system and all of its, its wealth and all of its comfort, to let go of that so that they could be freed up to run the race. He's saying, do that. I remember one time going on a trail run at the... Uh, the um, Roxy Ann, they just put some brand new trails in and they, it really wasn't time for the trails to get packed down. So it was like this really sticky clay. And we were doing this big loop, and we got way out there, and then we got into this clay patch, and I kid you not, there was like a foot. Okay, pastors exaggerate. I need to stop that. Six, like six inches. That's pretty, that's pretty. Six inches of mud on each foot. And it was like, it was like adding like five pounds each foot, and it was just miserable. And it was all rounded at the bottom, so every time I take a step, my ankle would like twist. It was miserable. It was weight. Okay, so the idea is a very simple idea he's trying to get here. He's saying, if you're going to run this race, you got to get rid of the thing that's heavy. You got to get rid of the thing that's bearing you down. You got to get rid of this weight. Uh, you got to put it off. Now, we should ask the question as good Bible students, we should ask the question, what's the weight that the author is talking about to the original audience that this letter was written to? I think that, that if, you, if you go back and read Hebrews with that question in mind, here's what I think you'll probably come up with. First of all, they were carrying the weight of expecting to still have a comfortable franchise in this world. Because see, once it started to be taken from them through persecution and struggle, they started to question their faith. So he's saying, that's weight. Put that off. Stop expecting anything from this world. Don't expect anything from this world. Expect everything from the next world. But even more so, I think the weight that he's talking about here is a weight of legalism. It's a weight of legalism. Because remember, uh, what these guys were being tempted to drift back to was more rules. It was Old school, Judaism, hey, you know what, if you go back to the old way of system, the system, or the old way of religion, and you go back to these, these kind of intense, burdensome rules, life will be better. And the author here is saying, no, that's weight. That's weight. Now, I want you to note this. Follow me. Don't lose me. Notice that he says weight and sin. Okay, now those things clearly are different. Weight and sin. Now, that's not to say there's not some weight to sin, 
but he's saying wait and sin. Here's what I think he's saying. He's saying, hey, put off the legalism and put off the sin. And here's the interesting thing. It's almost always one of those two weights that we add to ourselves constantly. And, and we, what we do is we, we, uh, we overcorrect from one ditch to the other. Okay, we, we drive right into a ditch of sin. You get yourself into addiction or a sin pattern or, a, or some, something that, that has ensnared you and it's slowing your race. And, and then you, you go, oh, I'm never doing that again. I'm, I'm out of here. And then you jump so far the other way that you go right into the ditch of what? Legalism. And, and then you're the person, you know, sitting there sort of sneering at the, the, the Christian brother who you see who's having a beer at the brewery. And you're going, how dare you? I, got, I was an alcoholic. How could you possibly have a beer? What have you done? You, you've literally jumped out of the ditch of sin and right into the ditch of legalism. And listen to me, both are weight. And some of you guys in here are carrying some of both. Some of you guys are carrying one or the other. Some of you guys are getting up in the morning and you feel like you can't pray. Why? Because you didn't really do much for the Lord yesterday. Or, or you, you committed that sin that you keep continuing to do and you just can't seem to get free of it. So, you know, I'm not going to pray because that, that sin is keeping. What is that? That's weight. It's weight that's keeping you from running. Some, some, some of you guys are, are not able to enjoy the grace of knowing that Christ has given you his perfect credit score because you feel like you have to do more to earn his approval. That's weight. It's weighing you down. And, and it's one of those two things. It's one of those things. That the, the call of the author here is to put off that stuff, put off the weight, put off the sin, and run freely. Because we are not called to run with weight. We are called to run free. Do you realize that? You know, Christ came and died and ran his race and went to the cross and resurrected from the grave and ascended to the right end of the Father so that you, Christian, could run your race free and light. But here's what we do. We pick up weight and we throw it in our back every day. Every day. We pick up weight and we throw it in our back. Why do we do this? We do this because we are choosing to let a lie dictate our, our running rather than a reality. We're choosing to, to not believe the gospel and not say, hey, I don't need that sin. I don't need that rule. I don't need that weight. I don't need that condemnation, that legalism. I don't need that burden because I'm free in Christ to just run. I mean, we're free in Christ to just run. Now, how do we put on the proper attire. Let me just remind you of, of, of a parallel passage here that you're very familiar with. It's not that we don't wear anything when we run, praise God. We wear something, right? And what do we wear? According to Paul in Ephesians chapter 6, he says, uh, 6.10, he says, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Now, here's what I want you to notice. I know you know this passage. I know you've heard it before. Uh, but I want you to see something maybe new about it. All the pieces of armor that Paul's going to list, they're all saying the same thing. Have you ever thought about that? They're not different things. They're all the same things. Look for it. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over the present places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the, in, in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Here it is. Therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. What is that? Believing the gospel. And having put on the breastplate of righteousness. What is that? 
believing the gospel. It's not your righteousness. Your righteousness is filthy rags. Whose righteousness are you putting on every morning when you wake up? Christ's righteousness. That's believing the gospel. Okay, here's another one. Uh, and the shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. That's having your feet firmly planted on the gospel. What is that? It's believing the gospel. 16, and in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, which is faith in what? In the gospel, in the good news of Jesus Christ, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and so on. And the helmet of salvation. What is that, church? Believing the gospel. Have you ever thought about that? All the pieces of the armor are all the same thing. Paul's saying, hey, look, you just need to wear one thing if you're going to run free, and that is that you need to wake up in the morning and you need to believe the gospel. How do we do that? Well, we do that by doing what our text is saying, by shedding off the weight that Christ has not died for us to carry. Getting up in the morning and saying, you know what, I don't need that sin in my life. I'm free from that sin in my life. I'm free from that addiction in my life. Getting up in the morning and saying, I don't need that condemnation. I don't need that guilt. I don't need that frustration. All that matters is Christ and his perfect righteousness that's been imputed to me. I'm going to believe it every morning. And if I'm believing it, then I'm running free and light. So it's not that we don't wear anything. We wear the righteousness of Christ and we put off the weight and the burdenness or the burdensomeness of religion and of sin. We put it off. So ask, I want to ask you, what weight are you carrying right now? What weight did you walk up those stairs this morning carrying? Is it self-righteousness? Is it legalism? Is it a burden? Is it sin? Is it codependency or fear of man or people-pleasing, which is all a failure to believe the gospel? Did you know that? If you're in a codependent relationship, it's because you're not believing the gospel. How? Well, because if you were believing the gospel, you would see that you don't need that person's approval to be approved. Why? Because you're already approved by who? By Christ, because you're in him. If you came in here this morning and you have the weight of past failures, you're not believing the gospel. You're not seeing that those failures are forgiven, atoned for. If you came in here this morning and you have hidden sin and you're choosing to live in such a way that's trying to keep that secret. I heard uh, a pastor the other day, the funniest analogy. He said, trying to live in secret sin is like trying to keep a giant beach ball under the water. You're just like, and if you just like don't pay attention for a second, there it goes, right? oh man, these people don't know about this part of my life and I hope that never gets out and like you're just constantly managing, okay? That's not the Christian race. The Christian race that is believing the gospel says, forget that, beach ball's out, hey look, there it is, I'm a sinner, saved by grace, look at the grace of Christ, look at what he can do. Freedom, that's how we are to run the race. Put it off and the call is to lay it aside, and here's what we like to do with our sin and our, and our weight and our legalism. We like to, to take it off for a minute and kind of set it somewhere close so we can reach it when we need it, right? But what does it say? It, it says it trips us up. It, ca- it catches us. It, 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 it's, it's not passive. It's active. It's going to cling to us. It's going to trip us if we don't put it to the side. So you need to take that thing and you need to kick it over there and you need to run away from it and leave it. You need to move away from it, okay? That's the apparel of the race. So we've seen the cloud, we've seen the course, we've seen the apparel. Now let's see the pioneer. And this is where it gets really cool. Are you guys excited? Yeah? yeah. You're like, shouldn't you be closing right now? Shouldn't you be saying? Uh, I'll close in a minute. Uh, the pioneer. 
This is the whole point of the passage. Now, the true focus of this passage is not your race, and it's not the race of the cloud in the stands. The true focus of this race is the ultimate racer. Let's, let me introduce you to him through verse 2 of our passage. So, Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Here it is. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. So, the author says, look, here's how you're going to run your race. There's a cloud of witnesses. There's a course ahead of you. The course has been set. Here's the apparel you need to wear. Put off all the weight. Believe the gospel. Run. And here's the most important thing. What do you look at? What are your eyes drawn to? The most important thing, your eyes need to be locked on this one racer. There is one racer who stands out far above the cloud, far above the witnesses in the stands. This one racer is all you need to look at. And this one racer is two things. He is the founder and the perfecter of faith. Let me just break those two words down for you really quickly. The first is he is our founder. Founder is one of the coolest words in the New Testament. It's the Greek word archegos. Can you say archegos? You guys are Greek scholars now. Um, Archegos. Here's some other ways archegos can be translated. Don't check out on me. This is really important. Archegos can be translated author, trailblazer, originator, initiator, leader, captain, and my personal favorite, pioneer. What's the idea that's supposed to be brought across to the audience here? The idea is that Jesus was a trailblazer. He was the first he was the first to run what? To run his own race of faith. You know Jesus ran a faith race? And you might be going, how could he run a faith race? He's God. He's God. How could he be run? I mean, how, could, I mean, how hard was it really for Jesus? Couldn't he have just done whatever he wanted to do? Well, let me give you a little bit of Christology for a moment. And Hebrews taught us all this, so this is review. Jesus, when he became a man in the incarnation, he took on human flesh, meaning he had two natures. He had his divine nature, and he had a human nature. He added a human nature to his divine nature. When Jesus lived his 33 years of life, he set aside his divine nature and lived entirely into his human nature. Why? So that he could pioneer the race of faith and do perfectly what you and I cannot and never could. So that he could be the new Adam. Adam number two, so that he could truly run a race of faith. He's the founder, the archegos, the author, trailblazer, originator, initiator, leader, captain of our salvation. He's the first. He's the trailblazer. He broke trail, and we run in his wake. What are the implications of that? The implications, I'm going to give you some gospel, so I better get some amens here. Okay, the implications of that are that his scorecard gets imputed to you. Amen? That means you get to stand on the podium with him. Not because you ran a race perfectly, but you just finished. His perfect score is accredited, accredited to you. It means that he has great solidarity with us, meaning he understands what it means to have to trust the Father. Jesus in the garden, he was sweating drops of blood asking the Father, do I have to? To which the Father in silence said, Yes. That was a faith moment for Christ. So he becomes our example 
He becomes our scorecard. I remember years ago, hiking into a lake with some friends, and we were just, we were, it was late, it was getting dark, and we were worried we weren't going to get there in time. We were worried we weren't going to get a campsite. So one of our friends, who was in much better shape, uh, he's like, well, I'll just go up ahead. And we're like, you go ahead. So he just like ran up the trail, and he secured a camp spot for us. And here's the beautiful thing. Before, we were huffing, we're puffing, we're worried, we're stressed. Oh, we're not going to get a campsite. As soon as my buddy took off, we're like, we're good. We can just take as long as we need. Why? Because we know he has secured the space for us. This is the idea. See, there's one racer who ran before you. He ran ahead of you, and he ran the perfect race. And your faith is not in your own faith or your own faithfulness. Your faith is in his race. It's in his scorecard. It's in his credit. He took the podium. He's got the gold. Your job is to believe in him and let his righteousness be your deepest identity. Amen? That's the idea. He's our forerunner. He's our founder. But that's not all that he is because it also says he's what? He's the perfecter. He's the perfecter. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter. This is the other side of the thing. The other side of the thing is that he not only started faith, he completed it. He not only is the one that that championed faith for you, he is the one that's going to get you all the way to the end. Some translations put it, Jesus is the author and the finisher. I like that. He's the author and the finisher. He's on the front side and the back side. He came into creation and he ran the perfect race of faith for you and he also, within the Trinity, was above creation, sovereignly making sure that you're going to get all the way to the end. He's above it and he's within it. God's work of salvation is transcendent and it's imminent. He's working within creation and he's working above creation. Isn't that cool? God sent his son, who is the second person of the Trinity, into creation to save you and I from within it while all the while the Father stays above sovereignly orchestrating the whole thing, sending the Holy Spirit to work both in and through his creation for salvation. Pretty cool stuff. He's the author and the perfecter. So we've seen the cloud, the course, the apparel, the pioneer. Now let's close with the why. Remember I opened this sermon. I said, what's going to get you to run the race all the way to the end? It's the why. Why are you running? Why did you sign up for this crazy thing in the first place? Okay. What is the why? Well, the author not only wants your eye to be drawn to Jesus as the perfect champion, he wants your eye to be drawn to what allowed Jesus to run his race so effectively. And we learn that here in the text. Look at verse 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. So what do we learn about the why of Jesus' perfect race? There's two things we need to see about it. The first is that he set the shame behind him, and the second is that he set the joy before him. He set the shame behind him, and he set the joy before him. Note it, it says that Jesus despised the shame. What in the world does that mean? Is that a phrase you've used in the last two years? You know, I just despise the shame. Oh, Okay, what does that mean? Okay, let's talk about that. What does despise the shame mean? Here's what it means. It could be translated this way. He disregarded it. He didn't give the shame the time of day. He didn't let shame be a central feature of orientation for him. He said, shame, you're back there. I'm not thinking about you. You're not part of my reason making. You're not, you're not important enough for me to, to even calculate you into it. 
He disregarded it. And you should be asking the question, what was the shame that Jesus disregarded? There were two prongs to it. There was a human prong and a divine prong. The human prong was simply this, that Jesus was stripped naked in front of a public group by the Gentile Romans, beat profusely, mocked, rejected, denied by his best friends, spat on, abused, mocked, tortured, and put up on a cross for all to see. That was shameful. But that's not even a fraction of the shame that Jesus had to despise. It's not even a a fraction of the shame that Christ had to say, I'm not tuning into that shame. You know what the real shame of the cross was? It was that Christ became sin and that the Father turned his face away so that the Father could look at you with acceptance. He had to look at the Son with rejection. Jesus had to become the refuse of the world on the cross so that the Father's righteous indignation could be poured out completely. That's what the cup of wrath was. That's the cup that Jesus was terrified to drink. It wasn't man's beating. Jesus wasn't a coward. It was God's wrath. He absorbed it for you and for me. And then he gave us his perfect righteousness. This was the shame that Jesus despised. This was the shame that Jesus disregarded. This was the shame that, said, that Jesus said, I will put it behind me. Now, you might be asking, because shame is a powerful thing, isn't it? Shame has a lot of power over us. It will cause us to live in secrecy and darkness and, and slavery for years because we're so terrified of shame. Okay, so the question is, how do we get our shame behind us? And the answer is right here. We put joy before us. You want, jam, you want shame behind you? Put joy before you. It says Jesus ran his race with the shame behind him because he had set joy before him. Now, you should ask the question, then what was the joy that Jesus was running for? Bible tells us, John chapter 17, Jesus is praying to the Father. And here's what he says right before he goes to the cross. He says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, listen, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. What was the joy of Christ? What was the joy that ran the race for him? It was not just the joy of the church and not just the joy of salvation. It was the joy of the pleasing of the Father. It was the joy of the glory of the Father himself. It was such a superior joy for Christ to obey his father because his father, listen, his father was the source of ultimate joy and glory. Jesus has this transcendent revelation that none of us really fully get that there is no greater joy in the universe than God himself. Therefore, there's nothing more joyful than than living in such a way that, that gives you full access again to that glory. Jesus wanted the father. He wanted to please the father. That's why he ran the race. Now, I don't want to lose you here, but think about this. You might perceptively ask this question, but didn't he have that before he became, in, before he came into this world? Wasn't he already sitting, seating, uh, seated at the right end of the Father? Wasn't he already in heaven? Didn't he already have full access to the Trinitarian Godhead? Wouldn't, wasn't he already sovereign? Why would he choose to leave that sovereignty and come into this world for 33 years and suffer and die as a human? Why? To get what he already had. Why would he do that? Here's the answer. One word. Reconciliation. We actually sang it in the song earlier. It's a controversial line, but it, you, you guys sang the words. It's, it's, he didn't want heaven without us. 
So he brought heaven down. It's very true, actually. He, he wanted reconciliation. The whole, the whole Bible could be summed up in that one word, reconciliation. Because see, in, in, in God made creation. Creation was fractured into two kingdoms. God's kingdom and the kingdom of man and darkness and sin. And what Jesus is doing is in his, in his own body, he's reconciling back those two kingdoms. So Jesus, when he ascends to the right hand of the Father, listen to me, listen. He took his humanity with him. Now Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, having reconciled within himself heaven and earth. And we are an expression of that reality. So he came It's not that he didn't already have sovereign power. He came to rescue and to reconcile his creation. That's the gospel. It's what Jesus does and salvation. It's really cool. He ran his race for the joy that was set before him. So what? Here's why it matters because the same joy that allowed Jesus to run his race is the same joy that will allow you to run your race. If you are hitting the wall if you're consumed by weight and sin and you're consumed by shame and shame is motivating you and shame is driving you and fear is driving you and sin is controlling you, the answer is to set the joy of Christ, the joy of the Father, the joy of his glory, his approval, him personally, to set that joy before your eyes. And that's exactly what this text is calling us to do. It says, consider him. Look to him, the author, the finisher. That's what's going to get you all the way. That's what's going to get you all your way, not grit and determination. It's what your eyes are looking at. What are your eyes looking at? What are you filling your life with? Is it the gospel? That's the nutrition that will get you to the end. The discipline that you need to do is to be disciplined to believe the gospel, to see it every day, to get up, believe it every day. The call is to consider him. Amen? Why don't you guys stand with me? We're going to end a little bit of worship.